0: We began uh, a few weeks ago uh, with the question, does God exist? What does science say? And I explained in the beginning, I'll give you a quick overview of that, that um, I approached this uh, with the idea that if God exists, if there is a God, then surely science must actually point to God, not away from God. And I was Curious to see if I could prove that because many, a high percentage of scientists are atheists and our students are exposed to those atheists and you all have heard that a high percentage of our students leave the church when they leave home. And how would that be? Did we not do a good job of Noah and Abraham and all that? I'm sure we did. But when you have an atheist uh, who's teaching your children for three hours a week, uh, for four years and and they're not just passive atheists they're radical atheists you know they want to convert people uh to to their religion which is atheism as well so <clears throat> that was the basis for the the study and i i wanted to approach this from the standpoint of uh a, an audience that were agnostics curious non-believers and so you're just the warm-up for what I hope will become an opportunity uh, in the future to share this kind of information uh, with those kind of folks. So we began with an introduction, an overview, and I said at the time that we were going to talk about cosmology, physics, paleontology, chemistry, and biology. And uh, we we got in one session of uh, cosmology, or that was, was that after? No, that was before Christmas. And then we've had the break, and so now we're going to uh, wrap up tonight the uh, topic of cosmology and physics. Let's get on to it. You know, this worked before. There we go. Maybe I should turn it on. How about that? There we go. So we know, uh, we saw from the uh, uh, Previous presentations that there was a beginning. And while that seems very normal to you, that is actually a revelation to science as of only the last 70 years. About 70 years ago, the entire scientific community did a 180 degree flip flop and went from believing, saying, preaching that the universe was eternal and unchanging to accepting. That indeed there was a beginning a long time ago, but there was indeed a beginning. The initial state of the uh, universe at the time was uh, undefined, it was pure energy. There was no form, and you might recognize that term there was no form. And the existence, the uh, material universe at the time, was void. You recognize those terms. I'm actually kind of talking to you with my church hat on tonight. Uh, so in the beginning, it was pure energy. And Machio Kaku, if you remember that, uh, the picture of that Ph.D. physicist, described it as cork soup, a liquid environment but without form because it was the initial burst of energy that somehow began. So the laws of physics, everything that has governed the development of the universe as we see it, came into existence in the first degree of Planck time. Now look that up when you get home. Planck time. Uh, That is the smallest unit of time imaginable possible. It's not imaginable. It's the smallest possible. And it represents the first 1 to the 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Now, when I was uh, talking about it last time, I said in the first billionth of a second, the laws of physics, the laws that govern the formation of everything that is, occurred in the first billionth. But that was way too much time. It was much, 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 much shorter than that. 10 to the minus 43 seconds. Now, I know that's a number that's impossible to grasp, but just for comparison, the total number of seconds that has existed since the beginning of time is 10 to the 26th. And this is 10 to the minus 43. So what are we saying? In the beginning instant, all the laws that have governed the creation of everything that exists and everything that we see were established in that moment. I mentioned, I put, kind of put Brad on the spot and he let me off lightly. I, I mentioned um, that there were roughly 30 fundamental, uh, fundamental physical constants. And in fact, uh, there's a little disagreement as to how many there are, and that's why he let me off lightly. Some say there's only 26. And some say they're actually more than 30. But all of these are constants that have remained constant since the very beginning. Now, do you remember a couple of the uh, comments that were made about these constants? How if they changed in even the slightest way, complex life could not exist. You and I would not exist. If gravity was percent of a percent, stronger or lighter, we wouldn't exist. If the charge on the electron were a percent of a percent different than it is, we wouldn't exist. So all of physics will agree, all of physicists will agree that the universe is finely tuned for a complex life. They will also admit it it didn't have to be that way. Now they can't tell you why it's that way. They'll just admit it's that way. If these constants were any different, complex life could not exist. The universe would have either expanded too quickly to allow life to form or it would have collapsed on itself and not allowed a place for life to form. So the laws have been in place since that first infinitesimally small part of a second when something caused this emergence of energy, this cork soup without form to emerge from nothing, And those laws have proceeded to form everything. All the matter that we observe today in all of the universe came from that first instant. There was a beginning. The universe is not eternal. The universe is expanding. It is not static. All the laws have been in place since the beginning, and it is finally, finally tuned complex life. Now we're going to listen to um, a part of a lecture from uh, Paul Davies, a PhD physicist who uh, I believe is currently at the uh, University of Arizona. Paul has been involved in projects in the past with Stephen Hawking. Uh, He has been or may still be in charge of the analytical part of the group called SETI, S-E-T-I, Search for Extraterrestrial intelligence. So he's uh, big in the uh, cosmology arena. Of course, he's a, a physicist by trade. And uh, were there ever to be a signal received from out there somewhere, he would be the guy to be called in to say, does this represent intelligence or is this just static uh, from from out there somewhere. So we're going to listen to Paul uh, tell us about the uh, current state of the uh, science regarding uh, physics and cosmology. Now, I know it plays, but I may have to...
1: Well, thank you, Anne, for that kind introduction. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Two more minutes. Uh, it's, uh, it's great for me to be back here in the Sydney Opera House. It's also great for me to catch up with my colleague, Lawrence Krauss, We have adjacent offices at Arizona State University, but we both travel so much that we're not often there together. So it's nice to be in the same place for once. Now, a pivotal event in the history of science occurred in the year 1859 with the publication by Charles Darwin of his famous book, The Origin of Species. And in this book, Darwin gave a convincing account of how over billions of years, life on Earth had evolved from simple microbes to the richness and complexity of the biosphere that we see today. But he pointedly left out of account how life got going in the first place. It is mere rubbish, he said, thinking at present of the origin of life. One might as well think of the origin of matter. Well, I'm pleased to say that we physicists have now explained the origin of matter, Lawrence mentioned that, And the question is, how are we getting on explaining the origin of life? Well, I have to say that a century and a half later, we're still largely in the dark about life's origin. Now, the problem of life's origin is really three problems rolled into one. There's the when, the where, and the how. And I'll talk about each of these in turn. First of all, when did life begin? Now, we can't say exactly when it began, but what we can do is trace the fossil record back in time to the earliest point where we can be fairly sure. That is, we look for the oldest traces of life on Earth. And it turns out that those oldest traces are found right here in Australia. Well, not quite here, but on the other side of Australia, in the Pilbara region, that's um, near Port Hedland. Uh, and In that region there are rocks that are sticking out of the hillside which are three and a half billion years old. So they're among the oldest known rocks on Earth. And those rocks contain uh, what is probably the oldest traces of life on Earth that are generally agreed. There's some dispute. There are rocks a bit older than that, but there's some dispute about whether uh, the traces of life are genuine. But those particular rocks, we pretty much agreed, do contain evidence for life. Um, but this this evidence uh, is in an indirect form. Uh, so I took the trouble to go there back in my moustache days. Uh, and it's, it's best not to go in the summer. It's actually very hot uh, in, in that part of Australia. Uh, and this, um, this is what the scientists get excited about. This rock here, it's called chert. And if you look carefully in that chert, uh, what you see are... These little features, they're like ice cream cones nested together and sliced through. Now, I have to say, that doesn't look very exciting to me, uh, but the astrobiologists, they're the people who study life in the universe, they get very excited uh, by these features, which have the name stromatolites. Uh, Now, actually, technically, they're not stromatolites. They're fossilized stromatolites, three-and-a-half-billion-year-old structures, And they're not themselves, were never themselves living things. They're fossils of microbial mats. So microbes that deposited sediment in layers over many thousands of years, and then these things became fossilized and embedded in the rocks. Uh, And and that's what gets them excited. Now, uh, you might say, well, show me a living stromatolite. Uh, They're very rare. It's hard to find stromatolites, but you can uh, if you're visiting the Pilbara region, I do recommend it. Uh, then, a couple of days' drive from there, uh, you go to Shark Bay, and there you see living stromatolites. Uh, and you see, it, what I, I like to say is if you imagine getting in a time machine and going back three and a half billion years uh, on Earth, this is as good as it gets. You know, this is life on Earth. That's about time for life on Earth to evolve the complex structures like us. In fact, for about 2 billion years, there wasn't much to see. Uh, And so it's it's not very exciting, uh, but it's tremendously significant that we see fossils of structures like this in these very ancient rocks. So it looks like um, life was established on Earth quite firmly 3.5 billion years ago. Now, let's put that into context. The Earth Earth itself, the solar system indeed, is 4.5, little over 4.5 billion years old, And, of course, it didn't form overnight. The planets formed from a swirling disk of gas and dust around the proto-sun, and it took uh, really quite uh, some hundreds of millions of years for this process to be completed. And during that time, uh, huge chunks of material rained down on the newly formed planets. So this is a, a NASA depiction of this process, and here's another one. And we can imagine the early Earth being bombarded ferociously. In fact, all the early planets bombarded ferociously by huge comets uh, and asteroids and rocky bodies. Now, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the fact that the dinosaurs were probably done in by a comet that smashed into Earth about 65 million years ago and created a crater about 180 kilometers across in what is now northern Mexico. Uh, well, that was... Uh, Um, small-scale stuff compared to what was going on in the early time in the solar system. The biggest of these impactors would have had enough energy to boil the oceans dry and swathe our planet with incandescent rock vapour. And so this is an artist's depiction of this sort of hell on Earth that would have persisted. Uh, It's a little hard to know, but uh, certainly for some hundreds of millions of years. And in fact, the The best record of this early bombardment comes not from Earth itself, because the material gets reprocessed, but from the moon. And on the moon, uh, all those craters that are so familiar tell us something about the early heavy bombardment. And uh, if you you plot some sort of schematic graph, uh, what you find is that this bombardment abated around about 3.8 billion years ago, whereas as I've told you, life on Earth extends back through 3.5. Of course, it didn't appear overnight, so presumably back to you know, at least 3.6 billion years ago. And so uh, this is a very narrow window. In fact, Carl Sagan, many years ago, uh, said that life must be easy to get going because no sooner was Earth ready for it than up it popped. turns out that that argument is fallacious. Uh, it might be right, uh, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, so I'll come back to that. Uh, but the important point is um, that there's been life on Earth for almost the entire duration of when Earth has been inhabited. Okay, let me come on to the where part. Where exactly did life start? Well, I mentioned that Darwin wouldn't be drawn on the subject of life's origin, uh, but in a letter to a friend, he did speculate about what he called a warm little pond, uh, over which, uh, over many millions of years, chemicals might leach out of the rocks And by some sort of process of chemical self-assembly, more and more complex molecules might form until eventually something would crawl out of this warm little pond. And that's as far as he would be drawn. But it did give rise to the popular notion of some sort of primordial soup, at least an aqueous medium in which some sort of chemical magic might take place. But we don't quite know what that magic is. So is this warm little pond idea uh, a viable one? Uh, Well, um, uh, really, I have to say that it's not. Remember this uh, hell on Earth, uh, so this early bombardment, would have meant that warm little ponds wouldn't really have survived for very long. Uh, And so the attention in recent years has shifted from ponds uh, to uh, what is sometimes called the deep, hot biosphere. Now, it comes as a surprise to people that life on Earth Uh, is not just restricted to its surface. In fact, a substantial fraction of the Earth's biomass is actually living inside the Earth, not on the surface. Uh, Deep down, nobody quite knows how low you can go, uh, but it's certainly some kilometers. And, of course, uh, the organisms that live inside the rocks deep down are are microbes, and they live in the pores of the rocks. Uh, And this is not a very congenial place to be. Uh, For a start... uh, What do they do for sustenance? Uh, Well, uh, basically they have to make do with what's there. uh, And to be honest, it's not so much the the rock, though the minerals are useful for other purposes, but there is stuff coming up out of the earth, like hydrogen and hydrogen uh, sulfide, that acts as the, the fuel for this primitive metabolism in these microbes. And they're still there. They're still down, if you could drill down under our feet. Uh, for some kilometers, you would find it's teeming with life uh, down below us. And that seems a safer place to be. If the Earth is being bombarded, you don't really want to be anywhere near the surface. <laughs> and some evidence that life started uh, inside the Earth, not on the surface of the Earth, comes from these uh, hot springs, uh, the, uh, the base of the ocean where uh, the, the lava hits the water. Basically, there are uh, regions where Earth's plates are moving apart and stuff is coming up from deep down uh, and this uh, hot material uh, when it meets the water, the water circulates and uh, reaches temperatures of up to 350 degrees Celsius uh, squirting out of those, uh, those jets. Uh, they're often called black smokers because they make uh, black chimneys on account of the minerals that they deposit. Uh, and What came as a great surprise to biologists about 30 Uh, 35 years ago, was the discovery that this uh, region around these black smokers is home uh, to a a rich ecosystem, a vast range of microorganisms making a living at temperatures above the normal boiling point of water. The water doesn't boil because of the high pressures there. So making a living at temperatures above the normal boiling point of water and they can support an entire food chain with invasive species like crabs and tube worms. Uh, And now, the significant thing is when you sequence the genomes of the microbes at the base of this food chain, you find that they're among uh, the oldest and deepest branches on the tree of life. You can sort of reconstruct a tree of life from all the species and work backwards uh, and see uh, which organisms have, as it were, changed least over the billions of years on Earth. And it turns out to be these critters that live in these hot spring areas, Uh, And also, I think, in my view, the the surface around these hot springs, although it's deep under the ocean, is still a hazardous place. And it would be more likely that life would form uh, even deeper than that uh, inside the Earth. Um, But having said all that, all I've told you is that life established itself on Earth by three and a half billion years ago. But we don't actually know that life on Earth started on Earth. It might, for example, have come from Mars. Uh, How could life, form on Mars, and then come to Earth. How is that possible? The next slide says it all. That that same bombardment, which pulverized the surface of Earth, Mars, and all the other planets in the early days, uh, also served to propel material around the solar system. If Mars takes a hit, even today, by a comet, say, 10 kilometers across, that will splash huge amounts of material into solar orbit, and some of that material comes to Earth. And it comes as a surprise to people to learn that there are Mars rocks right here on Earth. But there are. Here's a picture of me holding one. Now, I have to say, it's a bit of a story to this. Um, this, uh, this picture, this rock, was collected by Douglas Mawson, uh, unrecognized for what it is as a piece of Mars, and it were, was in the geology department Museum at the University of Adelaide for years and years until it was recognized as being of Martian origin. It actually fell in Egypt uh, some decades ago and apparently killed a dog. Uh, And I think that's the only known canine fatality from a cosmic object. But in the early days, they were quite relaxed about this rock And they used to lend it to me, and I would take it to lectures and even travel around the world with it once. And would often, you know, it was in my pocket, would often forget about it. But it was always a a great topic of conversation in pubs. You'd say, oh, it's my round, lads. Oh, look, oh, yeah, Uh, this is a piece of Mars, you know. And people would be skeptical, consternation, and so on. But it was always a great thing to have with me. But now, of course, they realize it's worth millions of dollars. Uh, they, They don't let it out. Uh, but at Arizona State University, we have uh, not one, not two, but three uh, Mars rocks. Somebody can ask later on, how do we know they came from Mars? I won't get into that. Uh, anyway, the, the question of rocks from Mars uh, was propelled to public fame by none other than Bill Clinton. Uh, this is uh, I call this the rock that made Bill Clinton famous, uh, because he stood on the White House lawn in 1996 and proclaimed that NASA had evidence for life on Mars, in the form of this Martian meteorite that was found in Antarctica that contained these funny little features that for a while looked to be like fossilized Martians, albeit diminutive. Uh, Since then, the evidence has largely gone away, and I think very few people still feel that this particular meteorite contains evidence for life on Mars. But, you know, it's an interesting thought. If there was or is life on Mars, we might detect traces of it in Mars rocks right here on Earth. So that's uh, an interesting aspect. Uh, Okay, so much for the where. Let me move on to the how part. And this is the really tough part of the problem of life's origin. How did life begin? And I think I can uh, be quite upfront about this. We haven't a clue. I mean, we really do not know. And it's sort of depressing to think we may never know. We may never have a blow-by-blow account of how life on Earth got started. And part of the reason for that is it all happened such a long time ago. So even if life on Earth started on Earth, all traces of the early processes will have been obliterated a long time ago. However, I think we would settle for something less than understanding each step of the process. We would be content to know uh, simply uh, was it a bizarre fluke, maybe unique in the observable universe, or is it a chemical inevitability? That is, is it bound to happen given enough time? Now, during my career, it's been very curious. The pendulum has swung quite decisively. I got interested in searching for life beyond Earth, and in particular, searching for intelligent life beyond Earth, aliens. I'll, I'll come to that in a moment. Uh, back in the 19, when I was a student in the 1960s, one might as well have professed an interest in searching for fairies. Uh, it was widely assumed, among all the sciences, that life on Earth uh, was a bizarre fluke uh, unique to our planet. And no person said it better than Jacques Monod. He said, man at last knows that he is alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe, out of which he emerged only by chance. That was in 1970. Well, I have to say, this did coincide with a period of Gallic nihilism, and he looks uh, suitably miserable about this pronouncement. Uh, and, uh, and you might say, well, you know, that was just his philosophy. Uh, but um, Francis Crick, Mr. DNA, uh, had a similar opinion, and in 1973 uh, wrote, life seems almost a miracle, so many are the conditions necessary for it to get going. Well, we scientists uh, don't believe in miracles, so we've got to do better than that, and so that idea that life uh, is a sort of a fluke, we are freaks, it's a bizarre aberration in the universe, uh, that, uh, that feeling seems to have changed. And so in more recent years, uh, there have been much more upbeat comments. So here's one by Christian de Duve, uh, a Nobel Prize winning biologist, just like Francis Crick, drawing a very different conclusion. He says life is almost bound to arise wherever physical conditions are similar to those of the Earth. That was in 1995. And he's got this wonderful phrase that life is a cosmic imperative. Uh, and so um, the question is, what, what is the case? Is, is life a, a bizarre fluke or is it a cosmic imperative? Uh, I get uh, infuriated because very often get asked uh, by journalists um, how likely is it that we will discover life out there beyond Earth? And I say the question is meaningless, and it's meaningless for a very simple reason that many of my distinguished scientific colleagues seem to forget about. Okay, how did life begin? If we don't know the process that transformed non-life into life, we can't possibly estimate the odds of it happening. You cannot put the betting odds on a process that you don't know. If you know the process, even if you can guess the process, you can have a stab of figuring out how likely it is. But as we don't know what that process was, we absolutely have the clue. We can say nothing whatever about the likelihood of life starting, which is the same as the likelihood of life beyond Earth. Absolutely nothing. Now, there's no lack of real estate on which life may have arisen. And so this is a satellite, Kepler, now sadly not operating correctly. Um, it's been up there in space. It's a NASA mission, and it's been looking for extrasolar planets, that is, uh, planets going around other stars. When I was a student, nobody could be sure there were any planets going around other stars. Now there's a catalogue of hundreds, if not uh, a couple of thousand, of candidate objects. Uh, and, and these uh, objects, the, the planets, tend to be, uh, on the whole, much larger than Earth. But the holy grail is to discover Earth-like planets going around sun-like stars. And the statistics of this process are now good enough that one uh, can have an estimate of how many Earth-like planets, depending a little bit on how you define Earth-like, how many Earth-like planets there are uh, in the galaxy. And this is a typical report. You'll be very familiar with this sort of thing. I'm sure any of you who are following science will have picked up this, um, in my view, ludicrously upbeat uh, assessment of the likelihood of life uh, beyond Earth. So billions of Earth-like planets in, in our galaxy. Um, And uh, the key word here, you see billions or tens of billions in this case, of habitable planets. And people think, oh, tens of billions of planets with life. What they forget is that habitable does not mean inhabited. They sound the same, but they're very, very different. Just because a planet could sustain life of the form we have here on Earth doesn't mean it's going to have it. A habitable planet becomes an inhabited planet if and only if the probability of non-life turning into life is quite high, is not incredibly small. But we don't know that because we don't know what the process was. So let me just stress that point. If there's any take-home message from this lecture, it is that we do not know how non-life turned into life, so we can't estimate the odds. Now we can hope if, like me, interested in the idea of life beyond Earth since being a teenager, uh, if you feel like me, then you will hope that there is a fast-track pathway from non-life to life. Uh, You may hope that there's a life principle in the universe, a sort of law of nature that says, given the matter, given an energy source, given enough time, then life will out. You may hope there is such a principle. I hope there's such a principle. But we haven't yet discovered it. There is no known such principle in physics or chemistry. We haven't found a life principle. We could believe it as an act of faith that it might be there, but we haven't found it. So we must contend with the fact that it could be that life is restricted to Earth. Maybe it's splashed around a bit in the solar system, Uh, but it could be that we're unique. And that's uh, the philosophical conclusions of that are very deep. But let's go with the idea, uh, that uh, that the nicer idea in my view, that it, it is much more probable Um, So I think we're all agreed that somehow a chemical mixture transforms itself into life. So how can we make progress on that mysterious process that we don't know? Well, the first thing is we could ask a chemist. Of course, seems like the obvious thing to do. Could a chemist cook up life in the lab and show us how it can be done? Uh, Well, the first attempt to do this was made in a famous experiment by uh, Stanley Miller Uh, under the guidance of Harold Urey way back in 1952. And what they did was to take the components of what they thought the Earth's early atmosphere was like and put it in a flask there and sparked electricity uh, through it for a week. And a sort of brown sludge appeared in this flask. And when they analyzed the sludge, uh, they found to their delight, it contained amino acids. Now, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. Uh, And so uh, you might think, well, that's one step on the road to life, one small step. Uh, And that was the prevailing view in the 1950s. Well, you know, if Miller and Urey could get amino acids in a week, imagine if they could get funding to run the process for a million years. Uh, You know, maybe maybe it would just be uh, a a road, a pathway down which uh, a chemical mixture would be inexorably conveyed by the passage of time with life as the destination, just more of the same. Um, That early optimism has gone away, uh, partly because uh, of thermodynamics. It's dead easy to make amino acids. In fact, you find them in meteorites. Uh, You don't need very special conditions. It's because it's what we call thermodynamically downhill, it's favored. uh, Whereas the next steps of the process, assembling the amino acids into peptide chains, is an uphill process. It goes against the thermodynamic gradient. And uh, amino acids, only one part of the whole story. We also need nucleic acids and a whole bunch of other things. And uh, really making those things in the lab it turns out to be really, really difficult. Uh, but part of the problem is, of course, what we don't want in the origin of life story is anything like an intelligent designer. And the people who call themselves synthetic biologists, or in the Miller-Urey experiment, they set out uh, trying to design an experiment to make life. So even if we could do it in the lab, even if uh, with enough funding we could one day make life, that wouldn't, still wouldn't convince me that nature would know how to do it without having a plan in advance, without being intelligently designed, uh, which I don't think it is. So uh, that's one problem. The other problem is, uh, look at this picture. This is uh, a picture of what is called intermediary metabolism. Uh, these are the pathways uh, in, in a modern cell only a small part of this and uh, in the trade these things are known as reticulograms for obvious reasons. Uh, almost approaching the complexity of the London Underground map. And so biology is very complex. Uh, and so the, the question is if you're just accounting for making the building blocks you know what about assembling all those building blocks into something uh, much more complex like this. So it's a little bit like saying we've cracked the problem of how the Empire State Building came to exist. We've discovered how to make a brick. So the rest must just be more of the same. So it's not how to make the building blocks, it's how to assemble them into these very specific, very elaborate, complex structures. But there's actually a more fundamental problem running through all this. It's really a philosophical problem, and it's one that preoccupies me in my own research in this field. Uh, And that is uh, the problem best ask, what is life? And so that's something that scientists like to do again and again and makes great coffee time conversation, goes on and on and on. But basically, if you talk to a physicist or a chemist, what is life? You'll be told a story in terms of things like matter and force and molecules and energy and entropy and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and a lot of it's been worked out. And so that's the narrative you get. If you go to a biology department, ask a biologist what is life, you'll be told a story in terms of Coding and signals and instructions and translation and transcription all those sorts of things in other words information speak So we have two complementary descriptions of what life is one is it's all about molecules and shapes and uh, Chemical affinities and the other is it's all about information processing and you might think well, how can we have? chemistry and physics departments and biology departments in the same university these people they're talking conflicting languages. And they say, no, 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 these are complementary descriptions of the same phenomenon. And that's well and good, so long as you're, dis- you're discussing the phenomenon as we find it. But the problem about life's origin is that then we're talking about the physics and chemistry transforming into the biology. We're talking about matter and force and so on turning into information processing. Uh, if you like, put crudely, we're talking about stuff turning into bits, informational bits. How does stuff become bits? How, how? because in physics, the stuff caused the shots. Cause and effect are framed in terms of particles and forces and interactions. In biology, causality is framed in terms of signals and information. How did matter bestow upon information that type of causal efficacy? It's a very deep problem. Uh, there's an analogy, which I think you'll appreciate, um, and that is with computing. So here's a screenshot of my computer a couple of years ago. And uh, this is my beautiful wife, Pauline, here. And we see we've just been to the Taj Mahal, all very romantic. Uh, and then there's some other stuff less romantic there. Um, but, you know, to me, if I just uh, had never seen a computer before, Windows would seem like a miracle. Just remember, quick, seems almost a miracle. Explain it to me. So if I go to a computer, uh, a computer science department, and so say, "Explain Windows to me," and if uh, the scientist took the back off the computer and said, "Look, I can explain it. We've got some silicon in here, and there's some copper, and then there's some iron, and uh, you know, we notice with the silicon, if you look very carefully, there's these sorts of patterns inside, and we're not completely sure of all the details yet, but we think it's got something to do with those patterns, and you know, we're hot on the trail, and we will be able to explain." all of Windows very soon in terms of this. Well, you wouldn't be very impressed because what you're getting here is a story about the hardware of Windows. And that's fine. I'm not denigrating the people who uh, work on computer hardware. Where would we be without them? Uh, But uh, in the origin of life field, the hardware, the chemistry, corresponds to the hardware. It's the stuff of life the substrate in which life's magic is instantiated. What we're really interested in, what I'm really interested in, is the software, the software of life. Uh, So for a hundred years, the origin of life field has been dominated by chemists looking for the hardware, and that's fine, let them get on with it, but they haven't made a lot of progress. Uh, In recent years, we've started asking about, what about the software? What about the information processing capabilities? How do we make progress with that? Well, maybe you ask a computer scientist. A famous uh, uh, founder of computation, John von Neumann, he and uh, Alan Turing together, responsible for the modern electronic computer. And von Neumann was very impressed by the analogy between what is often called a Turing machine, a universal computer, a machine that could compute anything that was computable in one machine, a universal general-purpose machine, with the notion of a universal constructor a system that could construct, according to a program, anything you asked it to construct, including itself. So it would be a self-replicating machine. And von Neumann uh, wrote uh, papers or a book about the concept of, uh, well, asking the question, is it possible to build a machine that could construct any physical system, including itself? And so he laid down the logical architecture of what uh, such a machine would be. And this was before The unraveling of uh, the genetic code and DNA and all that stuff. Turns out that that life as we know it is actually very much like a von Neumann self replicating machine. Uh, But needless to say, we haven't made uh, any such machine ab initio, although some people think that 3D printing is getting rather close uh, to a von Neumann machine. Uh, But basically, we don't fully understand the software principles. We understand a bit about the hardware, don't understand very much about the software, but in my personal opinion, advances in understanding life's origin will come from a better understanding of uh, the uh, complex uh, web of information processing going on inside organisms and how that may have emerged from information processing in primitive chemical networks. So that's where I think the future lies. Um, But mostly we haven't got there yet, so this is a list of Uh, of questions before I uh, go on to the final part of the talk. Um, How did it all start? How did software emerge from hardware? How did bits come out of stuff? We don't know. Uh, How did non-trivial, programmable construction, because it's not... So a living organism just doesn't make any old thing. makes a very, very specific thing according to instructions contained in the DNA. How did that type of programmable, and importantly reprogrammable, because that's how you get evolution. Uh, Life gets reprogrammed to produce something different. How did reprogrammable construction emerge just from dumb molecules just banging around and interacting with each other? Um, How did digital information storage emerge? So we're all convinced of the power of digital information processing. Uh, I'm old enough to remember the slide rule. That's uh, called an analog computer, Uh, so slide rules You whipped out of your pocket and did the calculation like this. Uh, These days, we think, no, that's uh, that's really very inefficient. We use digital computation, and now we have uh, digital radio, digital television, digital everything. Uh, And that's because it's a very, very efficient way of doing things. Well, life went digital three and a half billion years ago uh, with life. How did it do that? How did it go from storing information just in things like chemical gradients to storing it in... Uh, these digital units like uh, uh, nucleotides in DNA and the codons and and so forth I won't get into. Uh, And then it's all very well to have digital information processing going on but it's got to do something, it's got to be useful. Uh, If you sequence a molecule of DNA, it's just a sequence. You can't tell by looking whether it's junk or whether it's uh, 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 something that's going to code for a biologically functional protein. Uh, There's nothing in the sequence itself. Uh, nature is blind to such sequences. It's only in the context of the entire milieu, and that may be much more than just the microenvironment of the cell. It could mean the microenvironment of the organism. Uh, it's only in that context we can say that we have biologically functional or useful information. How did that concept of the global environment having some sort of... Uh, I would still say causal efficacy over what's going on at the molecular level, how did that happen? And Let me repeat the answer. We haven't a clue. I mean, we really are in the dark. We've got some great ideas, and I have some colleagues doing great work uh, investigating this stuff, but it's at the level of toy models.
0: When we began... Uh, a few weeks ago, we talked about the confidence that people place in science uh, as opposed to the feeling that they tend to think uh, you have if your confidence is in spiritual things. We've seen that science has often been wrong. And we used the example from physics, uh, just repeating it earlier, about the complete change uh, in thinking. Uh, from just 70 years ago in the concept of a beginning. Well, uh, this is a physicist who also studies the origin of life, searching for life on other planets. And what does he tell us about where that search is today? Is life a chemical imperative? Could it have just happened on its own? Well, we don't have a clue. How did stuff turn into bits? How did stuff turn into information? Well, we don't have a clue. What system reads the information that does exist in the cell? Well, we don't have a clue. So I asked the question in the very beginning, What are you really going to put your confidence in? Now, we believe in science, but we've seen many times through the centuries where the scientists have been wrong. Now, they were ardent in their belief at the moment that what they believed to be true was true, and yet later proved to be wrong. Today, we don't have a clue is the most honest answer that you'll get from a scientist when asked the questions about the origin of life did you catch the comments about faith we can hope you can hope that we will find that but for now we don't have a clue so unresolved questions by the way in physics what is dark energy what is dark matter why does time move in only one direction Are there parallel universes why is there more matter than antimatter what is the fate of the universe no answers yet to those questions either and if you really want to throw a curve to your physics teacher ask them what is gravity and they won't be able to explain that either there is one undisputed fact you're going to die that is a fact Will you put your faith in science, or will you be open to the idea that there is an intelligence above us that in fact designed everything that we see today? Next week, we're going to look at the fossil record. Thank you for being here.